I hope you're doing well. My name is Thomas, if we haven't met yet, and I get to be on staff here at the Erie campus. And it's my joy to be able to open up the scriptures on the weekends and be able to share with you a little picture of who God is. And that's what we're all about. We want to know who God is, not as we would imagine him to be or wish him to be, but as he actually is and as he has revealed himself to be through his scriptures. And the reason we want to know who God is is because not every day is an easy day. Not every day is a day in which it's like smooth sailing. There are challenging days in our life. And we want to know about the God that we have seen so far, the one that is present in our lives, the one who hears and sees and knows what's going on and is able to do something about it. That's why we're in the Old Testament epic historical narrative of Exodus of who God is as he rescues his people Israel out of a place of bondage in Egypt and is bringing them to a place of promise. And it's important for us to continue to see who God is because he has not changed. That is the same God that brought his people out of Egypt is the same God that we pray to today, the same God that is present in our life. And so what I want you to see is that there are seasons to life. There are rhythms to life, your life and my life, And I kind of break it down into four categories as I've heard this taught before. There are four categories of seasons of life. The first one is a season of orientation. And there's a season of disorientation, reorientation, and a new orientation. That there's a season where this is kind of like smooth sailing, easy gravy, baby. Like you kind of know the parameters of your life. You've been in this season probably for a little while. You know what Monday morning is going to bring. You kind of know the details, the rhythm, the schedule. It's not as unpredictable as it once was. It's a season in which you're oriented towards. And then something happens, either by your own choosing or perhaps not by your own choosing, in which disrupts that orientation. Perhaps you get a new job. Perhaps you have to move to a new city. Perhaps you move from being single to being married or married with no kids to married with kids. Or married with kids and now they've graduated, now you're an empty nester. Or now you're moving into a season of retirement and you're into a new season and it's a season that is disorienting because it's the first time you've stepped foot into this season. And so now all of a sudden you're married with your first kid and you're going, I thought we slept for 12 hours a night still. What happened? And it's a new season in which you have to learn where the rhythm is. Where do you kind of get respite? Where do you experience life still? I mean, you step into a new job and it takes a season of orientation that you're disoriented when you first step in. You don't even know where the bathroom is on your floor. You don't know where the water cooler is. You don't know where the lunch break room is. Everything is disorienting. And then what comes after that is a season of reorientation. As you begin to learn some of the new rhythms, as you learn the ropes, as you meet the people, as the season continues to unfold, it begins to have a little bit of stability as you're reoriented. And then as that reorientation continues to develop, a new season of orientation at your new job, a new season of orientation at the stage of life comes to, comes to you. We're like, now you're more familiar with it. And it's back to like smooth sailing, easy gravy, kind of like, let's move on with life. This is great. And every person in the room is, is in one of these seasons right now. And I, I would suggest that if, especially if you're in the middle too, you need to know who the Lord is. You want to know who the Lord is. See, it's easy to forget God in the seasons of orientation. But we need to know where is God? Who is God? 
when life is constantly being disrupted and we're disoriented and we're trying to find our way. This is where we find Israel today. And so we're going to look at the book of Exodus again in three episodes today in which God is constantly orienting them, disorienting them, reorienting them, and bringing them to a new place of orientation on purpose to continue to mold and strengthen them. And we're going to look at Exodus because it's for our good. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing in the New Testament, right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's writing to a church, I guess not right after, but after the resurrection of Christ, he's writing to a church in Rome. And he's writing to Rome, and he speaks about the Old Testament writings. And this is what he says, this is is Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, Exodus, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That if you live in a season right now that seems very disorienting, and you want to know where is God, we look to everything that has been written. Why? It is written for your instruction. It's a reorientation manual. It's a piece that will help you reorient to where God is leading you and your family next. It is written for purposes of your endurance. Because between orientations, it can be really challenging to find your way. And you need endurance and encouragement and hope. Those are the things that what has been written in Exodus supply for us today. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. And let's pray before we begin. Lord, I thank you so much that you have recorded your mighty works, your presence with your people for our instruction, our endurance, our encouragement, and our hope. And so, Lord, as we look at your scriptures today and we see with your dealings with your people, Lord, we pray that we would glean those encouragements and instructions and hopes for us today. Lord, would it build into our endurance as we are in different seasons in this room. May we come to see a bigger picture of who you are from the stories today, that our trust in you would grow deeper and deeper, that despite our circumstances, we would know that you are the living God, present in our life, able to accomplish all. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Exodus 15. If you were with us last week, this is where we left off. If you weren't, amazing episode. They finally were free from Egypt. They were brought to the Red Sea and their backs were against the impossible. As their past caught up with them, ready to re-enslave them or destroy them, God moved to protect them. And then God did what seemed impossible. He provided a way of salvation through the sea. And Israel walked through the sea, and and as Egypt tried to follow them, God used the waters of judgment and swallowed up Egypt. And now we open up to chapter 15, which begins with this amazing song of Moses, singing the praises of God. I mean, how could you not? Your past that enslaved you is destroyed. You are on this side of victory, on a beach, Life is good. And Moses sings. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And his song goes on from there. And then Miriam, his sister, picks up a tambourine. And with musical instruments, they praise God's victory. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, she says. 
the horse and his rider has thrown into the sea. So they have come to know God as a rescuer, bringing them out of Egypt, and a savior, bringing them from Egypt to a place of total freedom. And what they need to learn still is that God, though he is present as a rescuer, present as a savior, they need to learn and trust that God is present as a provider. And in order to do that, and much more, God does not take them from victory to victory of promised land. He takes them south. Not north to the promised land, takes them south. The long way round, he takes them into a place called wilderness. Wilderness becomes the formation tool of God's people. That God is not only interested in our salvation, but he's interested in what's called sanctification. It is the process in which we are becoming what God has made us to be, conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, as revealed in the New Testament. That he has to shape his people that already belong to him, but he's going to shape them to be his children so that they are shaped, they are spiritually formed, and ready to step into the promised land. As we looked at last week, Philip Ryken said so clearly, God is not merely interested in getting his people out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of his people. That is the process of spiritual formation in which God will use this land called wilderness to do. And wilderness is a place of unruly, is a place of unknown. It is a place that can last what seems like forever. And based on Israel's choices, it will last 40 years. It will take them 40 years to be formed and shaped as these people that God wants. A generation will have to go. A new generation will come. We are on the shores, the beginning of wilderness where God will do his work of forming his people. And they don't know that yet. And so from this place of victory, on the beach, tambourine, song in hand, God is good, it opens up, in verse 22, then. That is how all seasons change. Orientation and disorientation, right? And then you fill in the blank. Here's what happened to Israel. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And so we have this very first instance of they move from victory three days, and they come out into the wilderness, and there's no water. Now, if you've ever been in the wilderness, if you've ever been out and you need survival, there's a few key elements, like shelter, Water, food, warmth, or like those are key elements. Water is essential. Your body, my body, cannot survive many days without water. So they come three days from victory, the Red Sea, and they come out into the wilderness, the beginning. And here God brings them to a place that looks like it has water. There's water! And I'm sure they rush to it. And there they scoop water up into their mouth and spit it out. Because it's bitter like drinking salt water. They can't drink this. And there they cry out and they grumble, it says. They grumble, meaning they complain. Not to God, but to Moses. 
They grumble to Moses. Why are we out here? There's no water. Why did you bring us here? There's no water. I mean, we knew where there was water back before. And surely Moses is saying, hey, guys, trust God. Trust God. We've seen God do incredible things for us recently. Trust God. And they're thinking, we can't trust God. I mean, what he did was like three days ago. It's been three days since we've seen him do something marvelous. And yet God's presence, his visible presence, and the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night is still with them. And they're grumbling. The bitter water God is using to reveal the bitterness in their heart. That's what God's using. He's using the wilderness now, the elements of the wilderness to expose the pieces of, of Egypt, pieces of their heart that need to be changed. We're talking about spiritual formation, changing you, shaping you, cultivating you to the people of the kingdom. What it means to be children of God. And so I'm going I'm to show you your bitter heart. And to do that, I'm going to use this water. But God is present. And he provides a way. And Moses takes this law. We don't know if it's a reason to make the water sweet. And there's a, there's a scientific reason behind that. Or he's doing another miracle. But there the water becomes sweet. And they drink of it. And this is a great example of, we have to understand privation before we understand God's provision. We have to understand that there's a place of our need that's not constantly being fed and always understand where our next meal comes from. We have to understand that there's a little bit of a, of a place of deprivation that allows God to show us that he is provider, that he is a present provider for his people. And so he provides for them. And later on in that same verse, 25, it says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. This water, this episode, was to test them. Now, when you hear the word test, you might not know what the word means, really. You think, okay, this is like an exam. Like, those who failed, you're out. Moving on with, like, the, the tag kids. Talented and gifted this way. You know, every other kid, you stay here. No, that's not exactly the meaning of, of test. See, when I think of test, I, I always think of, like, a math test. And when I think of math test, I think of, like, being in high school, because that's probably the last place I took a math test. And I remember it was, like, ninth or 10th grade, there was an algebra test. I know now you take like algebra in like third grade or something like that. <laughs> so I wasn't a tag kid. And I'm taking this test and we, and we get our results back. And there was a, a tag kid, a talented and gifted kid in the front row. And he had missed one of the questions. And his argument to the teacher as he got his exam back, because he missed one of the questions, he said, this question was worded poorly. I demand that you would give me full credit because this question is confusing. I didn't understand what you were asking. And after a little while, the professor finally said, okay, listen, why don't you go across the hall to Mr. Gregory? You can ask him. If the question is confusing, come back in here, and I'll give you your last point on the test, and you can have 100%. And so the kid grabs this test, goes out to Mr. Gregory's test to find out if he thinks the question is confusing. While the kid's gone, my professor says, all right, everybody, pop quiz, grab, out, grab a piece of paper. So everyone pulls out a piece of paper while he's gone. He says, real quick question, it's worth 10 points. How many cans are in a six-pack six of Pepsi? Everyone wrote six, passed it in. He's like, great. The kid comes back and says, Mr. Gregory agrees with me. The question was confusing. I want my point back. And he said, oh, absolutely, my mistake. You get 100%, but in your absence, you missed a pop quiz. <laughs> Is that the kind of testing that God's about? Like trying to just find a way to get you. 
trying to find a way to kind of like show that you're not in control, you're not as smart as you think you are. Is that the kind of testing God's interested in? No. When the Bible speaks of testing, it's probably more like weight training in high school, where you would take measurements and you would find out how much you can lift at certain levels and different exercises, what your bench press was. And then throughout the semester, you would have a training program. And then from now, from, from time to time, there would be a test. But it wasn't pass or fail. It was to see how strong you have grown, how much stronger your muscles have grown, in which areas. And so the test was twofold. One, to show you where weak areas were. And two, to encourage new growth to happen. And so the testing of God is to show us where our weakness of faith is that we would then exercise and strengthen our muscles of faith, that they would become muscles of endurance, that our strength of our trust in God would grow. And so this is set up that they would grow their spiritual muscle of faith in God as present provider. That's what this is happening, okay? And so here is, I would test them saying, if they will diligently listen to my voice, that's going to be the test. Will they tune their ears and listen to my voice? Will they trust me? From there, from this place of bitter water made sweet, he takes them to an oasis. Verse 27 says, they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. They come to this oasis in the middle of the desert. And now it's like the season of orientation. I know where my water is. I know where my food is. I know where all this great like, shade is and rest. This is a beautiful place. God can be trusted. Once again, 12 springs. I mean, there's like El Dorado and Avion and, or Evian or whatever the bottled water is. Like flowing from the rock. It's beautiful. But this is Pilgrim's Progress. God is moving them from place to place in the wilderness. They don't encamp there and stay. They're on a journey to the promised land. And so this too comes to an end, this season of orientation, as he moves them further along in their formation as his people. And so we pick up in chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this holy assembly with hunger. You tried to do it with thirst. Now you're trying to kill us with hunger. Perhaps all their provisions in which they had packed have now been consumed. And now they've been brought out. Why did we leave the oasis? I mean, there were springs and palms and it was sweet. Now we're out here and we're disoriented again. Where is God? Is he going to provide food for us? And they grumble. And they complain again. They grumble to Moses. And they say the most peculiar thing. It would have been better. Let, let, let's go back to Egypt. Remember how great Egypt was? We sat around meat pots. And we ate till our tummies were full. And all you want to say to them is what? Yeah, but you were slaves. 
yeah, okay, I, okay your, your stomach was full. You knew where your meals were coming from. You had meat. You had these cucumber sandwiches. There was fruit. But you were slaves. Of course they fed you because they kept you in bondage. Why in the world, why in the world would they long to go back to Egypt? Have you ever said to yourself, I just want things to get back to normal? You ever said that? Yeah. I just want things to go back to the way that I remember them. And I, and I was oriented. I, I, they were familiar. I knew when, when lunch was coming. I know the taskmasters brought it to me, but I knew it was coming. And I, and I knew what to expect in my day. I mean, I didn't have all these high hopes of freedom. This is why many of us will run back to habits and behaviors that we know will bring us more guilt and shame because it's familiar. Because there's something that's so uneasy about the wilderness, having to trust God, not trusting ourselves, in seasons where we're just disoriented, and having to rely on another that will quickly run back in hopes that things will return to normal. But see, that's not God's plan. God's plan is not to bring you out of orientation to disorientation and get you back to normal. He's bringing you to another place, a new place of freedom. He's bringing you deeper and deeper and deeper into freedom. And it's a scary place for us. This is the picture of the Christian journey. Is that we are pilgrims, having been set free, our salvation has been purchased, and now we are in this disorienting place of how do we trust God? How do we pray to God? How do we have new appetites? We have all these old appetites and old love affairs. What do we do out here? And we're learning slowly as we're being tested to strengthen our spiritual muscles of faith in God. And so they grumble. We're going to go back to what's familiar. It's so disorienting out here. We don't know where to find the food. Then the Lord, this is verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Remember? This is, again, to test them. I'm going to bring food now, more than they could ever imagine. Every single morning, I'm going to bring food for my people. And God, this is, so, this is so great. This is God's compassion towards his people. The same God then, the same God now. He doesn't answer a holy, righteous prayer. Oh, most glorious Father, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, if it would be your thy will, would you please bring food? No, they're like, this place is terrible. You're terrible. God's terrible. God's like, ah, I'm going to give him some bread. That's God's compassion. Oh my goodness, that's God's heart. He answers grumbling, not even just holy, righteous prayers. Now, I'm going to test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Listen to my voice. That's another way of saying listen to my voice or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So there's going to be 
manna every single day. And on the sixth day, they're going to gather enough for two days. Every other day, just enough for one day, enough for one day, enough for one day. Then on the sixth day, gather enough for two days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses is probably really relieved because they thought it was he. He's like, I didn't do this to you. The Lord brought you out, and you will know the Lord brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Not just a God, but I'm your God. I provide for you because you're my people. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And they asked, Is it gluten-free? Say, is that rye? Man, I don't do rye. That's too early in the morning for rye. No, they, they don't know what they haven't seen. This is like heavenly provision. Anyway, I wonder what it tasted like. Well, they call it manna because they actually don't know what it is. Look at verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white to the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That sounds awesome. That's pretty good bread right there. And it says in the end of 16 that they ate this every day, sustained them for all the days in the wilderness until they stepped foot in the promised land. That was God's faithfulness to them. All right, back verse, verse 21. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Now how much is an omer? It tells us it's a tenth of an ephah. Yeah. An omer is about two liters. So picture like a two liter of Dr. Pepper or Pepsi or whatever beverage you drink. Two liters, that's, that's an omer. So they gather about two omers worth. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. In verse 29, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So here's, here's kind of the game plan of what happened. God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to show you an abundance of provision that I am faithful as provider. And so I want you to continue to reorient yourself around me. And I'm going to show you that every morning there will be food. Every single morning. And, but only collect enough for one day. And on the sixth day, collect enough for two days. So on the seventh day, from the Genesis mandate, God created the earth in six days. The world in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. We want you to have a day of rest as well. A day where you don't have to go out and gather, that you can rest and be in your tents, be with your family, hang out with your children, don't rush off to work. 
that your body would rest, your soul would rest, the community of God's people would rest. This is my provision to you because I love you and I hear your grumblings. Daily bread, enough for today, and then enough that you might rest tomorrow. That's who I am. And on day one, they run out and what do they do? Get all you can. There might not be enough for tomorrow. And I mean, they just like pull this in. And everything that they gathered that was too much for the day, the next day had spoiled and stank and worms. Why did they do that? Because they had not learned yet to trust God as daily provider. And then the sixth day came and people only gathered for one day. And on the seventh day, what did they do? They ran out there and they said, where'd all the food go? There's no food out here. They had not learned to trust God, even to provide them a day of rest. You see what God's teaching his people? Know me, know me. I'm gonna form you as my children and my children will know me. You've known me as rescuer. You know me as savior. Come to know me as provider. The one who'll provide for your needs. And we will continue to test and strengthen that muscle. Third episode, chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. So imagine there's a season in which they orient themselves around what God's doing in this land. And then God's like, we're moving on. You're like, oh, we're disoriented again. Is God still going to be with us? So they move on from the land of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So he goes from grumbling to quarreling. Now they're fighting with Moses, God's leader. They're fighting with him and challenging him. Does he know what's going on? There's no water here. And you'd think at some point they'd say, God will provide for us. But this is the story of the wilderness in which we are constantly being tested. Israel's being tested to know that God is going to show up for them, will provide for them. And so they quarrel with, with, the, with Moses, and it turns to be testing the God. They're testing the Lord, which is not a good thing to do. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, there's a very real sense of need here. You don't have water. And you're, you're a holy person, okay? You're like super righteous. You're going to trust God. But man, your kids show up, and they're like, Mom, I'm thirsty. Don't, don't worry, the Lord's going to provide for us. And your kids are telling, I, I am so thirsty. Don't worry, the Lord's going to provide for us. Then at some day, you turn to Moses saying, what have you done? I, I remember when things were normal, but you forgot they weren't always normal. God had to show up and, and reorient you. But then it was normal before that. No, it wasn't normal before that. God had to show up and reorient you. But it was normal before that. No, it wasn't normal before that. God had to show up and reorient you. Learn from what God has done in your past to know what God will do in your present. But they don't. They grumble. 
And once again, God hears their grumbling, and in his kindness, he responds. Verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Isn't that the bottom line question? Isn't that the bottom line question in the seasons of life? Is the Lord still here? I mean, did he like lose track of me? Did he forget about me? Did he forget that like, I'm going to need a job and I'm going to need to pay some bills and I have some things to do that need to be accomplished in life? Does he forget that I got a family to feed? Is the Lord here is the bottom line question we're all asking in the wilderness in seasons of disorientation. But let me ask you this. Are you a grumbler? I mean, are you a grumbler? Not someone who like cries out to the Lord and, and prays to the Lord, but someone who's a grumbler. Like anything that kind of comes your way, you kind of complain about it. Like the, the weather changes in the middle of the fall and you grumble about it. You get home to dinner and it's like, oh, we're eating that again. And you grumble about it. You get to work on Monday. It's like, oh, these emails, that person's in my office. And you grumble about it. And you kind of grumble Monday through Saturday, and then you bring your grumbling to church. You're like, oh, these service times, they don't really fit my schedule very well. And, oh, the, the worship team is, that, is playing that music again. And, oh, the pastor's preaching again. Wearing that outfit. Come on. <laughs> Are you a grumbler? God's people shouldn't be grumblers. We shouldn't. Because we know him to be a provider. The remedy of a grumbling heart is gratitude. That's what it is. And so when you feel your heart grumbling, complaining about your lot, the lack of needs or desires to your preferences, it might be good to slow down for a moment and record gratitude. Lord, I'm so thankful for. Thank you for your provision of. I look at my history and I thank you for. And to be able to record moments of thankfulness that your heart as a child of God would be changed from a grumbler to someone who's gracious. And so we don't want to be grumblers. We want to learn that lesson from Israel. But here is the bottom line question. Is the Lord among us? God answered that question emphatically when he sent his son, Jesus Christ. When he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And upon his resurrection, he put his spirit, the spirit of God in us. That God would never leave us or forsake us, ever. God answered that question, will he be among us? Absolutely. And Jesus takes the Exodus motif and he's drawing so much from it and fulfilling all of it in his works. And if you remember, Jesus was baptized. And after his baptism, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness, it says, to be tested for 40 days. He is fulfilling everywhere Israel failed. 
Everywhere in which Israel failed at their testing, Jesus Christ is faithful. His active obedience makes him our sufficient Savior. In Matthew chapter 4, you see that the devil himself shows up to tempt him. After 40 days, it says that Jesus was hungry. The devil says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Don't trust your father for provisions. You do it yourself. And Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. They brought him to a high place and said, jump off it. God, God will catch you. God won't let you strike your foot on the ground. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the devil said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'd worship me. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And Jesus was faithful in the wilderness so that he would be faithfully present in ours. That is what the sufficient savior is. And so even in his statement, Man will not live on bread alone. Is our material possessions are not enough. We have a greater hunger, a deeper thirst that is for eternal life. That only, only, only Jesus Christ can satisfy. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 6. In John 6, he's speaking to the crowds who had just been fed by him. He'd just been fed. 5,000 plus women and children were just fed with loaves of bread and fishes, and they're coming to him asking for more real bread. Just like, well, I have something better than just the material bread. You need something deeper than that. You need saved. You need the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he goes on with these statements. You try to track with Jesus. 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the, the will of him who sent me. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and never die. That's Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And so Jesus fulfills everything where Israel failed so that he would be the all-sufficient Savior providing the very thing that we all desperately need, eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life. So I don't know what season you're in, of orientation, feel like disorientation, being reoriented, or on their way to a new orientation. If you're asking that question, is God even among us? Is he with us? May, may the scriptures this morning from Exodus be an instruction to you for endurance, encouragement, and hope to know that you are not alone. The bread of life is with you in every situation you're in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we are not alone. Lord, I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose and that you won't let us just settle in here at the wilderness. Lord, would you remind every single person in this room that we are citizens of heaven. 
And that we journey in the wilderness, this thing called life, and in the midst of it, we are being formed into your son. And so, Lord, would you test us that our spiritual muscle of faith and trust in you would grow? Would you remind the men and women in this room where you have been faithful in their story thus far to give them the encouragement and assurance of your faithfulness still? Father, we we humbly surrender ourselves to you, not merely as rescuer and savior, but provider. May we know what it is to have daily bread, enough for today, and enough that we rest tomorrow. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.